Hey, today's Bible reading comes from James chapter 2, starting at verse 14 and going through to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodgings to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Thanks, Mandy. Sorting my life out, sorry. We live in a world where it's hard to know sometimes exactly what is real. Yes? You go to the movies and uh, you see these. And uh, none of those are actually real, particularly the guy with the hole in the side of his head. Uh, You can pick the movies if that's what you like. And acting these days has changed completely. So if you ever see a photograph of some of these studios... They're just people dressed in fancy suits in front of green backgrounds doing crazy things. And then what actually is produced bears very little resemblance to what you actually see. Uh, Does it matter that what we see may not be real? Well, can I say, you may enjoy the movie that you go to, uh, and I'm looking forward to a couple of good movies coming out later this year that will make ample use of CGI. But, can I say, if you've bought yourself a Rolex, you probably do care about whether it's actually the real thing. Yes? Maybe you've spent $10,000 and you find out that your watch is worth fifty. Does it matter? Well, for some things, yes. Now, we've been looking at uh, a series on the book of James, the first three chapters particularly, that we've called Devotion. And we've been unpacking what real religion, what true Christianity actually looks like. 
And it's a really important question because there are lots and lots of imitations. And so when it comes down to it, when it comes down to real Christianity, do you know what that looks like? Can you spot the real thing? Do you know a fake? On what grounds would you suggest, oh, this is real, but this may not be? And there are lots and lots of criteria that people have for saying that their faith is genuine. They might say, I prayed the prayer. You know, someone asked me to come forward. I came forward and I prayed the sinner's prayer. Maybe they say, I was baptized as a child, as an adult, but I've, I've been dedicated to the Lord. So therefore, I'm in. Maybe you've had a spiritual experience. You've spoken in tongues or something has happened. And you go, look, I'm a Christian because this has happened to me. Maybe you can tick all the right boxes. You come to church. You share your faith. You give money. You serve. Now, James answers this question about what real Christianity looks like once and for all. And we're going to unpack that from James chapter 2. I've got four points for us this morning. So if you're following along, there they are. Uh, The reality check, objection, answering objections, and keeping it real. So you know where we're going. And uh, if I behave myself as a preacher, there'll be a little bit of time for Q&A afterwards. Um, Maybe you want me to behave. Maybe you want me to misbehave. Maybe that's more fun. But we'll see. We'll see. Let's dive in. Reality check. James says this. He says in verse 14 of chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? James actually asks, What profit is it? Literally, that's what he says. You know, what does it actually, what benefit does it bring on the ground and to you? If you claim to have faith, but have no deeds. James is asking, is this real? Can that faith actually save you? Is it resting on the right thing? Is it really faith? There's lots of counterfeits. And James has already warned us in chapter 1 that there, are, there is an opportunity for us to deceive ourselves. And so he, he says this, he says, Do not merely listen to the words and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. James introduces a whole category where we can be those who sit in church who listen to the word, who may be regularly in the word. But he says, if you are that person, but it doesn't hit the ground, it's like the person who looks at their face in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what they look like. It's a self-deception. It's a claim to faith that is not the real thing. And it's important to recognize that James here is talking not to those people out there, but to us in here. He's talking to insiders. And I think if James was Australian and he was living in our time, he'd actually ask, does such a faith pass the pub test? 
Listen to it. Like, what's your emotional reaction to these words? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? How do you feel? (laughs) Could you imagine doing that? Actually seeing someone in desperate need and not just some random person out there, a brother or sister. So you turn up to church this morning and you notice that someone sitting next to you, actually, it doesn't look like they've eaten for about the last week. They've got holes in their clothes. I don't think anyone would turn up naked. Okay, we're not quite at that point. But could you imagine that and going, oh, brother, sister, be well fed. It sticks in your throat, doesn't it? Does such faith pass the pub test? The issue here is just obvious human need. And James is writing to a church that if you do your work in the book of James, you'll see it's a church that is under persecution. A church that is suffering from a lack of the material comforts, basic food, shelter. A church that is scattered and poor. And he asks, does a faith that has no deeds, does a faith that says be warm, well fed, but does nothing, does it pass the pub test? Does a faith that claims the vertical, I love God, but never overflows to the desperate needs of those around them, loving neighbours, is that real? Now, we live in a society where not many, particularly in this part of the world, not many suffer that kind of desperate material need. There are material needs, don't don't hear me say that there aren't, but not in the terms of starving and naked. We can meet those needs. We heard of Jules and Cadeau this morning sharing. We deliberately chose to put their sharing of this passage together. We hear of this. But you know what? There's more to this. That's just one example. We might say to ourselves, I know that the gospel saves sinners. I know that. But we never, we never pray for people to come to faith. We never open our mouths to share of the hope that we have. We might say, I know that my identity is in Christ, that I am a son, a daughter of the heavenly father, a brother, a sister of the Lord Jesus, an heir with him. But we crave the world's affirmation. And we cave into peer pressure because we just so desperately want to be well thought of. We might be those who say, I know that God is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. But we flirt with sin. We go online and we check out all sorts of things that we know that we really shouldn't. But you know... 
we say, I know that God provides. He cares for all that he has made. But we're not generous. We won't give of ourselves, of our time, of our money. James would ask, does such a faith pass the pub test? And his verdict, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's pretty hard hitting, isn't it? It's pretty like, whoa. And we might be here thinking, oh, am I even saved? You know, this is where there's a word we call assurance, you know, and we talk about Christians having assurance, the confidence that we have that we are accepted by God. And what I've just done through the book of James maybe is just radically undermine your assurance, okay? You're all sitting there going, am I even a Christian? Because we all have these inconsistencies. And if you've been at Trinity Church Brighton for any length of time, we're always banging on about you are saved by God's grace. It is a free gift. It comes to you not by your works, but by faith. Religion is a do. It's all the stuff you've got to do to get right with God. But Christianity is different. It's about what God has done for us in Christ. And so it gives us a radical assurance because it's based not on our works, but on Christ's finished work done on the cross through his death and resurrection. So what is James saying? What is he actually saying? He's saying that when you receive the gospel, when you receive the finished work of Christ that comes to us freely by grace, when, it come, when you receive it by faith, that gospel will transform you. That gospel will change you. That gospel will turn your life upside down. James has used the phrase, he speaks of the gospel of grace, the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He speaks of it as the implanted word. He uses an image Jesus used. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 4. This is one of Jesus' parables, the stories that he told to explain uh, spiritual truths. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. What Jesus is teaching and what James is reflecting is that real faith has a growth dynamic. Real faith produces life, spiritual life. And what James is saying here is, have you got a seed or a rock? To rip off Matt's kids talk from the other day. Have you got a seed or a rock? You can plant a rock. How's that plant going, Matt? Is it, is it flourishing? Not at all. No. No, it's not. 
if for those who missed the kids' talk, Matt and uh, Co, his helper Lucy, planted a rock, and they watched it develop into absolutely nothing. That's what James is asking: Have you got a rock or a seed? Okay. But there's an objection. And here it is in verse 18. Some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Now, if you read this passage carefully, it's quite confusing. Okay. And uh, the translation, translation as an art is not always precise. If If you're familiar with other languages, you'll know that sometimes it's quite difficult to actually line up Uh, what something says literally with what it actually means. And there's a bit of an art to this. I've picked out a few just to make you smile. Uh, I liked all of these. Tastes like grandma. Is that really what they meant? We know what they meant, but today is under construction. I like that one. Uh, That should be a sign at the end of my bed, I reckon. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for understanding. Or the explosive dog. I do like the explosive dog or tiny grass is dreaming. Uh, Does anyone, is that what that actually says? (laughs) Sorry, Uh, you might think I'm being horribly racist here by not picking sort of examples of English, but we speak English. So it's, you know, I'm sure there's some horrid examples where uh, we've translated into other other things, other languages that don't work as well. But translation doesn't always line up. And really what... Probably the best way of translating the start of chapter, uh, chapter, verse 18 is this, is that James, James has got someone who's objecting and they're saying there's two types of Christians, mate. There's the faith Christians and there's the works Christians. So you've got these two options and what the commentators think is happening here is that someone has heard the teaching of the Apostle Paul and you might be familiar with this Because James here is taught that you are not justified, you are not declared right by God by faith alone. And what does Paul teach? Read Romans, read Galatians. He reads, you are saved by by grace through faith. It is faith alone. And so you've got these guys who seem to be in contradiction. And so maybe they've justified and they said, oh, you've got these works guys and you've got these faith guys. And that's okay. And maybe that's what you think. Oh, I'm a faith Christian. I express my faith here and someone else is much more here and that's okay. What does Paul say? I think you misunderstand Paul if you hear him in contradiction uh, to James. Let me put them together for you. This is what Martin Luther struggled with, if you're familiar with Luther. Uh, This apparent contradiction but Paul was talking to a church where people were trying to add to the requirements for salvation so someone is not a Christian and these people were saying yes Jesus but you've got to have these other things particularly circumcision Jewish labeling the Jewish identity you've got to be in So it was works plus faith to get saved. That's what Paul's arguing about. Okay, James 
is arguing a different point to a different congregation. What James is saying is to the Christians. So he's not talking about what it means to be saved, how you get in. He's saying what life should be looking like while you are in. Does that make sense? Okay, so James is saying that if you have a real faith, if you are in, this is what it looks like and it will produce fruit. The kids talked this morning and fairly accurately represents our personalities, I think. Um, I can protest all I like that I love the Olympics. But really, when it comes down to it, Okay, sorry, maybe that's un-Australian. Maybe, maybe you just want to get up and leave. That's okay. I can deal with that. I'm secure in Christ. You see, faith on the ground. Okay? Um, but I can claim everything. But unless it's actually matched in action, there's a word for that, isn't it? It's called hypocrisy. And what James is saying is that when we grasp God's love for us in Christ, when we know who he is and what he is like and what he values, and when we see the extent that he has gone to to bring us in, to include us, that must transform us. Otherwise, we just not, have not got it. James and Paul are arguing different sides of the equation. Here's, um, for someone who likes a, you know, here's a quote. If a sinner can get into a relationship with God only through faith, that's what Paul argues, the ultimate validation of that relationship takes into account the works that true faith must inevitably produce. That's what James argues. You get in by faith, but the faith that saves is never alone. That faith will produce fruit. Okay. James says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. Those two go hand in hand. And he gives us a couple of illustrations to answer some objections. Firstly, a negative. I call this one demonic orthodoxy. You believe that there is one God, and you might know this reflects the Jewish confession. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Okay, you believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. Demonic orthodoxy. James is saying the demons have accurate theology. But accurate theology is not what will save you. And they know that they are under judgment. Demonic orthodoxy. Does this mean that doctrine doesn't matter? No. Doctrine does matter. But by itself, it's insufficient. Think of a building. Some of you here, uh, I know there's some builders in the congregation. You know what this is like. Doctrine, that knowledge of God that is revealed through scripture, is the foundation for the life of faith. But imagine you, got, you, you, you went to, you know, you paid a builder to build you a house and you turn up and he shows you a foundation and says, done. You kind of go, well, where's the rest of it? 
there's something missing. The whole point of a foundation is that you build something on it. Doctrine, the true knowledge of God through scripture, is the foundation upon which the life of faith is built. If you try and build without the foundation, the whole thing falls down. If you try to have works without faith, the whole thing collapses. That's not Christianity either. But to just have the foundation and say that's sufficient, James says the demons have the foundation. And one of the dangers for us in the world of evangelical, Bible-preaching, Bible-believing Christianity is that we turn faith into assent. We acknowledge, yep, that's true, yep, that's true, yep, that's true. But if you know anything, acknowledging something is true and actually seeing it transform your life are two different things. Do I know that eating ice cream with Milo on top is actually not good for me? Particularly now I'm in my 30s, you know? You put my weight on, that kind of stuff. Do I know that? I, I know that. I know that on many levels, okay? I know that through experience. I know that because I did a degree which taught me such things. I know that by watching other people, you know, indulge in that bad behavior as well. Does it transform my life? Yeah, that's another question, isn't it? I worked as a physio for many years or for a number of years, and I was in the realm of health education Part of what we did was to educate people on healthy lifestyle, how to you know, keep their bodies fit and active and all this sort of stuff. Did giving them the right facts change their life? No. More often than not, it didn't. More often than not, they, just, they change for a little bit, then they just go back. Having a real faith, though, will transform us. There's a question that we need to answer there. But he goes on, he gives us two more examples, both from Jewish history. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Okay, James here is picking up a story uh, that most of us, if we've been to like kids' church, we will have maybe known this one. But if you don't, you'll find it there in Genesis 22. Go back, we can read it. Maybe Matt's going to take us to Genesis 22 in the next couple of, you know, next couple of months. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, in case he didn't know that, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. God is putting Abraham to the test. The writer of the Hebrews picks this up when he's talking about faith and he uses this example and he says by faith Abraham when God tested him offered Isaac as a sacrifice if you're familiar with the story he gets to the point where the child is bound on the altar and Abraham is lifting the knife 
Personally, if that was me, I would have liked God to actually have stepped in a little bit earlier than that. But there's Abraham, and he says, he who had embraced the promises that through Isaac, your descendants will come and they will bring the blessing that God is promising. Abraham believed that, and here he is with a knife held over the one who embodied those promises. He was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said it is through Isaac through your, that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. God provided a ram that took Isaac's place on the altar. Faith and action. It's an incredible thing. Abraham shows absolute trust in the purpose, the person, and the power of God. And verse 22 is key. James explains what is happening. His faith and his actions were working together. There was no split between the foundation and the structure. Faith and actions were working together and his faith was made complete his faith was made perfect by what he did his faith was demonstrated as real by what he did faith and works collaborating the works complete the faith the works prove the faith you are saved by faith but real faith will produce fruit And the scripture was fulfilled, James writes, Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. And the incredible little postscript that James adds, and he was called God's friend. Isn't that amazing? God's friend. And then he gives another example from the book of uh, Joshua. Rahab the prostitute, was she not considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? You might know the story. The spies come in to scout out the land. She realises this is this God. This is what he's done. I know what I need to do. I need to be on his side. So she protects the spies. She hides them, sends them out in a different direction. And James is saying that is where faith, what you know about God, his person, his purpose and his um, power, how it then affects into your life. If she didn't think God was capable of giving the promised land to his people, she wouldn't have done it. But because she knew that absolutely, her allegiance was transformed. Faith and works collaborating. And James concludes, he says, as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So how do we keep it real? I want to take us back to that title, Friends with God. Do we see just how amazing that title is? I think, and I haven't done a rigorous study, but I think Abraham in the Old Testament is the only person who gets that title the only person in thousands of years of history that is called friends with god and then jesus 
sits in the upper room on the night before he goes to the cross. And he looks at the 11 of his disciples that are there. Judas is gone. And he says, I call you friends. And he says this. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Greater love has no one than this. And we know what happens the next day, don't we? That this one laid down his life so that enemies could be made friends. So those who had rejected could be accepted. Those who had walked away could be called home. One of my favourite hymns, and I know at least one person here is probably going to tear up when I start quoting this hymn. My song is love unknown. You might know it. It has a refrain that comes back through it. This is my friend. My friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. Do we see this one? This one calls us into relationship. And when this one, who has poured out his life, when we receive that love, how can it not change us? And if it has not changed us, have we received it at all? Live in the gospel. Live with the friendship of Christ. The one who on the cross poured out his life for us. Maybe this morning you've, you've wondered, is my faith real? Oh, brother or oh, sister. There is room for repentance in all of us. And Christ has done what is necessary for you to come home. Ask for the Spirit's help that you might know that love afresh. Keep that foundation secure. Go back. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Praise him. Pray to him. Ask for the Spirit's work to make that real. When you came here this morning, did you think, oh, it'll be nice to see some people? Or did you say, I am coming with God's people to meet with him, to hear his words, to pray to him, to sing to him? When we open his word during the week, do we expect to hear him speaking to us? Keep that foundation secure. And by his grace, resting in his spirit, live a life shaped by that faith, by that love, where the vertical, your love for God, flows out into the horizontal. Be on the front foot to bless. When you leave here today, even while you're here today, have that mindset as I have been blessed, so I'm going to bless others. Have that mindset that if I see a need, I'll respond to that. I'll do what I can with what God has given me. I think sometimes, I've heard it often, 
Oh, Trinity churches, they don't do, you know, stuff with the poor, orphans, widows. Actually, can I just say, you're thinking about church wrong. You're thinking about an institution, not a body of people. And I know this body of people, and I know there's lots of people here who visit the poor, who visit the elderly, who work amongst them, who raise our attention to the plight of brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the globe and ask for our prayers and ask for our support. I know what God is doing through each and every one of us. Sure, we may not have an official ministry, but we have a ministry amongst a community of believers, which I think God can use way more than an official organisation. So often the organisation becomes an excuse for us not to do anything. Oh, my church does this, so I don't have to. (laughs) Okay. It's great, though. I kind of get the kudos by reflection. It's kind of my church does this great evangelistic stuff, so I don't really need to share my faith. No. As we leave here, be praying. What is God putting on our hearts? What is God putting before us? He's not saying you need to solve world hunger. But he might be saying, what can you do for that hungry person? He doesn't say say, you need to solve the issue of loneliness within our city. But maybe you can address the issue of loneliness with that person next door. What is God putting before you? Live a life that reflects God's friendship for us. So, brothers and sisters, as we have received, so give. As God has served us in Christ, serve. As he has loved us, love. As we have been forgiven, So forgive. And brothers and sisters, as God's spirit works through his people, our faith will be seen and he will be glorified. Now we're going to have a chance to respond in song. That song I mentioned, my apologies, it was going to be a time of reflection. I'm happy for you to sing. So stand But the only one I could find, they'd cut three verses out of it. So if you're a purist, I'm sorry. But the best verses are there. Anyway, let's stand and sing. My song is love unknown.